Hey, y'all, welcome back to the Don't Mom Alone podcast. I'm your host, Heather McFadden, and this is the place where I get to walk alongside you and connect you with people and resources so you know that you don't mom alone. And in this episode number 368, I'm welcoming back a fan favorite, David Thomas. We're going to talk about raising emotionally strong boys. Culturally, we send a really strong message to boys that says anger is an okay emotion. It's kind of the only okay emotion, and I think culturally that we support for males. And so it fascinates me how early I think boys pick up on that messaging. And so if I've got this biological process happening over here where I'm just automatically funneling everything, and then the culture is telling me, yes, that one, not the others, but that one is okay you can see how many males get stuck right in that space and they can't identify what's underneath and grow into being adult men who can't do the work of figuring out what's underneath the anger. David first came on the show in 2016 and he was such a big hit with y'all. We've had him on multiple times since. I have been a fan since even before then Because as a mom of four boys, his book, Wild Things, was my guide to understand what in the world is going on over here. Well, I appreciate that David's knowledge and experience in the area of parenting boys comes from daily interactions with boys and their families through his counseling at Daystar Counseling Center in Nashville, Tennessee. And while a majority of us do not live in Nashville and do not have access to this fantastic service, I'm hoping this is the next best thing, is this conversation and pointing you to his newest resource that's coming out in June. It's called Raising Emotionally Strong Boys. And there's also a companion workbook for your sons called Strong and Smart. And it's a workbook to help guide boys in building healthy emotions help them understand, you know, vocabulary and how to regulate. So many great tips are at the second half of this interview. You, you'll definitely, if you don't have time to listen to the whole thing in one sitting, we're going to break it up and get to the end of this one. It is really helpful. And for you moms of girls, I think this information is good for all of us to have just so we can understand our emotions and understand ourselves better. So let's get right to it. Here we go. David. That's my, my really excited welcome. Welcome to the Dome All Alone podcast again. That is the best welcome I have experienced. <laughs> you just see my name from time to time throughout this interview. I loved it. Oh, man. You are one of our top guests. And I have a lot of moms in my lives that are very jealous that I get to have these conversations with you. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them. I would like there to be a David Thomas app that I can just pull out and just speak words of encouragement and direction over me as I go. So um, thank you again for joining me today. It is my honor. I'm grateful anytime you would invite me to be a part of a conversation on this podcast and just always thankful to be in your company, friend. Always thankful. Well, you have been such a guide for me as a boy mom, particularly, and just a parent. We've had lots of great conversations about boys. We will link to all of them in the show notes, including a friendship one we did recently with Sissy, your coworker, um, my friend, and yours. And today we're talking about exciting a uh, new book, a resource. Which you kindly read and reviewed and was a gift to me to offer some incredibly generous words to that book. Thank you. Well, I 
was like ridiculously pumped. I got a sneak peek because I needed it right when you sent it to me and I've read it again. And moms, you are going to pour over the pages of this book because we know our boys have emotions. They're made in the image of God. We know that emotions are complex. And we also know we live in a world where men (laughs) and emotions get a bit complicated. And I have friends that are men my age who are just learning to label their emotions. My husband, he's come on the show and talked about that. Bruce learns to label his feelings. We'll put that link in there too. Um, I know men who are grandfathers now that are learning to label their feelings. And what a gift we get to give our kids to help them be these emotionally strong boys from the start. So thanks for guiding us in that. That was my great hope. That is my great hope. And and I hope for any parent listening, I just want you to lean into exactly what you just said. Like one, I think the message of it's never too late. And two, the gift that I think fathers and grandfathers are giving boys when they're doing that work at this moment in their own lives of just reminding them, you know, it's never too late. We have all these sayings that speak to, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. He's so set in his ways, believing that we cross a point and it can't be done and it can. So I've had several friends say to me, I feel like this book is going to be as much a gift to my husband in some ways as it will be to my journey with my son. So that's deeply encouraging to hear you say, thank you. And it will be because we can't teach something we don't know necessarily. And you kind of break down what's required to really go from emotional outbursts, which is, I think what we see in boys, we see the outward signs of what's happening inward and we react to them. And it just, it's a cycle of chaos sometimes to like really break it down. What's going on and how can we help coach them to, you know, I don't know, not just do the lazy emotional work. I love how you would use that phrase, the lazy emotional work, but to be intentional, to regulate. Let's talk about the three R's. What are the three R's that we as parents can help our kids, our boys when it comes to emotions? And I want to say, as I introduced those, it was my great hope throughout this book to make these ideas as easy and user-friendly as possible, because I don't think it's ever been a more complicated time to be a parent. And I'm not interested in a parent reading this book and feeling like I've got 25 more things I need to do. I've got two dozen more books I need to read. I need to listen to all these podcasts. I wanted them to feel like I could set that down after chapter one and be implementing some things tonight at the dinner table. So I I want this to be doable. And I talk about the three R's as recognize, regulate, and repair. And, And recognize really being the starting point of what you wisely introduced, just helping boys figure out what do I feel? What do I feel? What kind of signs and signals is my body giving me? Our bodies give us all signals when we are emotionally charged. How can I pay better attention to those and identify what's going on inside of me and I and name what it is that I'm experiencing? And then That moves us into the second R of regulating, which is taking the emotion to something constructive, figuring out some coping and calming strategies is what I call them throughout the book that I can do to settle my 
nervous system when it's in this heightened state, which every one of us is going to experience on a daily, sometimes hourly basis, depending on our circumstances on any given day. And then the third R is repair. And it's just taking ownership and doing any needed relational work that I may have created through the process of not recognizing and regulating. And honestly, the great hope being that if boys get skilled enough with the first two R's, they don't really need the third R as often. You know, if I'm really getting emotionally strong and figuring out how to recognize and regulate well, then there's not as much repair needed to be done. Now, I certainly want to acknowledge we're all going to blow it. And I had a parent I was sitting with just yesterday who just was like, tell me how much damage you think I've done, you know, because I've been losing my temper on the daily and we're going to blow it. We're going to fumble the ball. We're going to drop the ball. We're we're going to lose our temper. We're going to say and do things we wish we hadn't when we lay down at night as parents. And there is repair work that every one of us wants to be committed to. But the hope being the more I'm really pressing into the first two R's, the less repair work, the less cleanup on aisle six is needed in the going forward. So thanks for letting me talk about those three R's. I think this concept of teaching our kids the vocabulary of emotions can seem daunting, especially if we haven't had a lot of education, emotions weren't an allowable thing. I don't, this phrase, you're so emotional. is kind of a hot button for me because I'm like, we're all so emotional just because I'm starting to express one of them does not make me so emotional. We all have them and there's a variety and they aren't good or bad. How, what we do with them can be helpful or unhelpful, but all of that training, I think I've gained in the last five to 10 years. I did not have as a new mom. I did not have as a child myself. So you've had other books where you've walked people through milestones. And in this book too, you talk through teaching vocabulary. What's a tip you could give a mom today if she has a boy and she'd like to start talking about labeling feelings? I would say a first tip I'd give is to get a feelings chart. You can download one of those easily off our website, raisingboysandgirls.com, and just have it visible. Have it out. The The idea behind that is a lot like how if we were to walk in any kindergarten classroom across the globe, we would know that somewhere in that room, we'd find the letters of the alphabet because we know at that point in development, as kids are learning letters and letters form words, words form sentences, those foundational building blocks of reading, if they can see the letters, it strengthens the connection. This is the exact same concept. If boys can see that feelings chart and reference that, I think it actually makes it less overwhelming and scary. Like when a boy gets thrown the question of, you know, how did you feel about a certain circumstance? It's like, fill in the blank. You know, it's just like, I don't know. That's like writing an essay in some ways, opposed to if I could just point to something on a chart, it turns it into something different at that point. And so I think it is both making the process easier. It's also, I think for us as parents, a reminder to be folding in more emotional vocabulary. I challenge parents all the time when you're sitting around the dinner table, just talking about your day, avoid saying it was fine. Mm. Fine is an acronym for feelings in need of expression. And so I want you to fill in the blank with something legitimate. You know what? Like today I felt embarrassed. I had to give a presentation to the board of directors and I didn't feel prepared. And right back to where we started, dads listening, moms listening on behalf of their husbands, like really challenge your husbands to be using that language, knowing that 
your sun's mirror neurons are firing and there is a lot of connecting of the dots happening when boys get to sit front row to the grown-ups they trust the most in this world not just the females but also the males using an expansive emotional vocabulary so that would be my first tip okay y'all it's really happening we're headed into summer and I don't know about you, not only is everything getting more expensive, but I feel like during the summer with my boys home more, they're snacking (laughs) all the time and I'm wanting to provide them with options that are organic and that will fuel their body, not just a bunch of junk and not spend an arm and a leg on these snacks and options. So I have found that I am all about Thrive market. Because with Thrive Market, I can shop everything from these healthy snack options and pantry essentials to my meat, my non-toxic cleaning and beauty products. I probably order the most of those. And what's great is you can find savings on items that matter most to you. And that's easy with Thrive Market because you can search their over 5,000 food, home, beauty products, looking for What's plant-based, keto, gluten-free, zero waste? Thrive Market has you covered. Let's say you are a big fan of the Siete brand, the grain-free. I love chips and salsa in the summer. I'm a big fan of that myself. And they're 20% off when I search on Thrive Market. So you can buy and save up to 30% off most organic groceries. And even better... When you shop with Thrive Market, you save time and gas by not having to make a trip to the store. More time by the pool with your friends and your kids. Best of all, if you find a lower price somewhere else, Thrive Market will match it. Join Thrive Market today to get 40% off your first order. 40, 40, and a free gift worth over $50. That's Thrive Market, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com slash DMA. Get 40% off your first order and a free gift worth over $50. That's thrivemarket.com slash DMA, thrivemarket.com slash DMA. And it's good for some of us who like to maybe overly emotionally attuned and we sometimes assume an emotion based on behavior. And for boys, that can be not what you think. You can think that it's anger, but underneath is pain or embarrassment. So to get behind the anger, since for yes. boys, don't you feel like anger is a primary expressed emotion? Oh, absolutely. In fact, somewhere around nine to 10, a boy will instinctively begin to channel all primary emotions or funnel all primary emotions through anger. So sadness, fear, disappointment, confusion, everything can end up presenting as anger. And and we talk a lot about how anger is a secondary emotion or a derivative emotion. And it's exactly what you said. There's always something underneath. And so to the degree that we're chasing after looking at what's underneath, getting to the root is, is really what we want to be about. I have a 10-year-old right now. That makes makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially when their personality is one way and then all of a sudden it switches and you're like, who is this angry little man living in my house? I've yes. never, this is not you is what I yes. felt like saying. This is not who you are. And is that like, is it pre-puberty like hormones coming in? Okay. Yes. And I think what accompanies that is that 
culturally, we send a really strong message to boys that says anger is an okay emotion. It's kind of the only okay emotion, I think, culturally that we support for males. And so it fascinates me how early I think boys pick up on that messaging. And so if I've got this biological process happening over here where I'm just automatically funneling everything, and then the culture is telling me, yes, that one, not the others, but that one is okay you can see how many males get stuck right in that space and they can't identify what's underneath and grow into being adult men who can't do the work of figuring out what's underneath the anger. And, you know, it's interesting. And when I did the research for this book, I came across some really scary statistics about adult males, which I think only fueled my passion for writing this book and, and the gratitude I have that you would let me come on and talk about it. And, I would say out of all the stats I came across, the scariest one I discovered was that currently our current status that globally one man dies by suicide every minute of every day, globally. Now, those stats are a little less in our country, but across the globe. And that stopped me in my tracks. And I talked about remembering one of the definitions I came across for suicide when I was in graduate school decades ago was that a person would start to believe that their pain exceeds their resources. And I mm. thought back on that definition and thought, I don't want another male in this world to believe that their pain exceeds their resources, that there's always help. There's always support. There's always, as we were talking about on the front side, new learning that can happen where I am able to navigate strong emotions differently, more effectively, more successfully. And, you know, if we climb down from that scariest stat to, you know, just reading the stats around how few men go for their well visit with their doctor every year compared to women and how much, you know, men are reluctant to openly discuss their health, any part, their physical health, their mental health, their spiritual health. They are, they have more difficulty just identifying how they feel about significant life events. They are resistant to act when they don't feel well physically. That's that stat about not going to the doctor. And so, Leaning into all of that, I think, just fueled my passion for wanting so badly to talk more about this and, and getting really excited. I think we could just feel buried in the overwhelming of those statistics, but getting really excited and think, no, we could change those numbers. Like, we have so much opportunity in front of us to raise boys who are emotionally strong. And I loved, I wanted to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. I love that it triggers you in the same way it triggers me when people say you're so emotional. And I... I want us to be thinking more and more about all the different messaging that is coming at the, the kids that we love. And I tell a story early in the book of I was at a funeral years ago for a man in the hometown where I grew up. And I remember vividly still today, though it's been years where I was sitting in that room and both of his, his grandchildren were all lined up as a family was going to receive people. And as they were about to, you know, take the coffin out of the room to head to the graveside, his six-year-old son started weeping and wailing, like just crying. I missed you. I miss you so much. I could still see his face right now. And his 14-year-old grandson was standing with his arms crossed. And his face was really tight. You'd tell he was fighting with every fiber in his being not to cry. And I remember walking out of the church and hearing folks say to the 14-year-old boy, I'm so glad you're being so strong for your family right now. And 
a couple of people who knew that I work with boys said, I feel so worried about that little six-year-old boy. And I remember saying, oh, I don't feel worried about the six-year-old at all. I feel worried about the 14-year-old, you know, the one that we're all saying, "Good, be, you're being so strong. Thanks for being so strong. And I thought, I want to reverse that message. Like the six-year-old was being strong. He was grieving in the way every one of us should have been great. He was reminding us, it's good to let yourself experience all the things you're feeling in the face of loss. And yet we were labeling this young man who was working as hard as he could to feel nothing, to try to numb out his experience as strong. And so I really do want us to think about all the different ways I think we message each other. We message kids in this world around emotions and become more thoughtful. And so I wanted to go back to that because I love when you spoke to that and I have a similar experience. And, you know, I had a conversation just yesterday with a parent who the mom said, my son cares a lot about sports. He's really passionate and commonly will tear up in the middle of a game. You know, if he strikes out, if the score is not what he imagined it to be midway through the basketball game kind of thing. And my husband has been messaging him like, buddy, you have got to stop crying in the middle of games, you know, and she was super concerned about what kind of message that was sending him about all of life at that point. And so I really do want us to think intentionally about how we're messaging kids and how, and what we're modeling, not just what we're messaging, but what we're modeling for them in the midst of it as well. So thanks for letting me go on and on. No, I mean, how often when I'm in a conversation with a friend, even a female friend and they start crying and they start, they immediately say, I'm sorry. I'm like, And I immediately respond to, I am not sorry. And I feel honored that you would share that with me. Um, Yes. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. So with all of this teaching vocabulary, good messaging as moms, I can speak to this part. There is something normally that happens where boys will anchor themselves to someone. And often it is the mom when it comes to processing emotions. Talk to us about that concept of anchoring to a parent, whether it's a mom or dad. You know, I use that word and I I think it's connected to that age old classic phrase of misery loves company. In this reality that I think is instinctive for all of us. It's like, if I feel really lousy on the inside, I kind of like you to feel lousy with me. I'd like to tie an anchor around your waist and drag you to the bottom of the lake with me. And that is most instinctive for kids. So if you have a toddler, if you have an elementary age kid, if you have a teenager who you feel like follows you around the house when they're really struggling, that is exactly what's playing out in those moments. And what will stay instinctive unless we teach kids and adolescents to redirect that anger is something useful, something constructive, which is the regulating the second R that we talked a little bit about. And so anytime I talk with parents who are in a really frustrated place, I want to first define that, but then say it's normal that kids would keep doing that unless we train them in their direction of doing something different, which becomes labor intensive. I want to shoot straight with folks like just (laughs) teaching, moving kids away from anchoring and toward regulating is, is tough work. It's labor intensive. And honestly, for some kids, I think it is easier work. I think it's maybe a bit like the analogy I often use is teaching a kid to ride a bike and, and think on how in the beginning, we don't just hand over a bike to kids and say, you know, take that out in the driveway and let me know how it works for you. You know, we're going to be running beside them, holding the handlebars until they get that wobbly to steady, you know, experience of how to balance themselves with pedals and gripping and 
even then when we take our hands off the handlebars, we're going to likely have our hand on their back and we're going to be running beside them. And then eventually we're going to be standing at the edge of the driveway and just watching them. And then at some point, we're not even going to be outside watching. We'll be inside and they'll be riding the bike safely on their own. But all that training on the front side is what I call co-regulation, moving kids toward regulation, which will be riding the bikes on their own. And that for some kids, you know, I would challenge any parent listening, think about your own, you know, some kids just get on a bike fall off five times, scrape up their knees, dust themselves off, get back on, want to try again and seem to take to bike riding in a really instinctive, natural way. Other kids throw the bike down when they fall off the first time, roll around on the ground, say, I'm never going to do this again. You can't make me. This is the worst thing. You know, all kinds of differing responses in how we take to learning to ride a bike, all kinds of different responses in terms of how we move from co-regulation to regulation. And to the degree that kids are lower in resilience, they're going to likely be more resistant to learning to regulate. And they're going to want to anchor themselves strongly and just continue the co-regulation, which is back to you. I love that you pointed out the lazy emotional work. It's just easier. I talk in the book about how, you know, kids would rather, as many kids who are low in resilience would rather us be their resources than develop resourcefulness. They just would rather us do the regulating for them than them having to learn the skills of regulation. So think on how you know your kids and likely every parent listening could identify which kid, you know, if they're early into this process might take to it a little easier and which kids are going to struggle. It's also normal. Lastly, I would want to say to that, it's normal for kids to go back and forth. So it's not like you develop mastery around regulation and then you never anchor again. And, you know, staying with that analogy, think on what it feels like. I know what it feels like to have not been on a bike for a year. And then I get on and I look like a person who's never been taught, you know, I'm just... (laughs) wobbly yeah, all whole, over like, the place. Just like riding a bike is not always 100% true. Yeah, exactly. And so don't be discouraged if you feel like you've labored a lot in this space and then you see some backward movement. I think that's true for all of development, that it's you know three steps forward, two steps back. That is a normal process. But what we're looking for is greater evidence of movement forward than steps backward. And I think when I read through this, it was very enlightening to me how this process, like you said, can flow typically and you're going from co-regulation to regulation pretty seamlessly with some kids. I noticed how with one of mine, it was easier for me to keep the co-regulation going than to train and push through all of the hard and kind of communicating, no, I think you're capable or here are some tools and stepping back. And so I was slightly enabling the transition, like being delayed. And sometimes I think for myself and maybe for other moms, we do that thinking we're being a good mom, stepping in and being that anchor and beating, being the punching bag sometimes to that blame shame storm, which we can talk about in a second, but just that they're upset emotionally. They don't know how to label it. They're tantruming a little bit. You're the punching bag. You take on all the emotional energy. You're trying to process it for them. You communicate back to them what's actually happening. And they're just like a bystander to it. And that can be exhausting long-term. And you end up with a child that won't be with you all the time. They will be in school settings. They will be in church settings. They will be in 
extracurricular and without any skills and without you there. And so you're actually setting them up for more harm. And I don't know, that was my two cents on, um, for the mom who has the anchor situation going on later than is typical for a child that's struggling. Now I am a big fan that your body is already summer ready, but I'm also a big fan of just feeling good and being able to keep up with my kids in the pool or just, you know, maybe trying to ski this year. I don't know. Is that ambitious? Maybe. But in order to do that, I need to get moving, not just sit behind my computer and be a little more active. And so I have goals to just be active. And one thing that is helping me do that is Peloton and not even necessarily any of their machines. Peloton has a great app that you can log on, find your favorite instructors, find the kind of workout you need, and even like the amount of time you want to spend. And you are going to get access to the Peloton instructors who are highly trained fitness pros. They know how to motivate you lots of fun music, whatever your fitness level, Peloton instructors don't just teach, they keep you going, they motivate. And there are thousands of live and online demand classes to keep it fresh. If you like cycling, strength training, yoga, running. I mean, if you just wanna run around your neighborhood, put on the Peloton app and listen, and they will talk you through a run. So an EDM run, I don't even know what that is. Maybe you want a yoga flow class with soul music, whatever you are into. Peloton fits into your life. Right now is a perfect time to try it out. The Peloton Bike Plus is now $500 less, its best price yet, and it includes a free delivery and setup. There are more game-changing prices available on the original Peloton Bike and Peloton Tread. So visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. Thinking about raising emotionally strong boys and the men they're going to become, of course, I think of my father. And we're headed into Father's Day. And y'all know that my dad is now with Jesus in heaven. And ugh, what I would give to sit with him and gather his stories to consider, like there are a lot of questions I have about his past that I can't get access to knowing. And This is the gift I want to give you. Please, please, if your father is living, check out StoryWorth. It is an online service that helps you and your dad or your father figure connect through sharing stories and memories, and then it preserves them for years to come because every week they email your dad a thought-provoking question of your choice, and then it prompts like, like, what's one of your fondest childhood memories, or have you ever feared for your life? And they answer the questions, and then once they um, have done that for a year, StoryWorth will compile those questions and stories, and you can add photos, and they make a beautiful keepsake book that your whole family can share for generations. So give all the fathers in your life a meaningful gift you can both cherish for years to come, StoryWorth. Right now, for a limited time, you can save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash DMA. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash DMA. Now, DMA is for Don't Mom Alone. To save $10 on your first purchase. Storyworth.com slash DMA.
That's worth way more than two cents. I'm glad you do that. And, <laughs> and I'm super grateful for your honesty because I would argue, I think that's true for every one of us. There is, you know, we talk a lot about how, Sissy and I talk a lot about how in our experience in doing this work for this long, we have observed that in every family, every parent has at least one kid who pushes your buttons a little bit more than the others. And often it can be the oldest child of your same gender or the child who's most like you. And that oldest kid of our same gender can at times feel like an extension of who we are when we're not even aware that's happening. That kid is the most like us. We can end up riding them harder because we see evidence of things in them that we don't love about ourselves. And if we're not paying enough attention to that, we start to operate. <laughs> we believe that, you know what? I'm going to parent that out of you because I really don't want you to experience the hard knocks in life that I did and believing that we are capable of that when we're not. And I think it's of great importance to pay attention to those dynamics. I think it's equally important to pay attention to the dynamic you just named that at times it's the other side. It's not that I'm getting triggered as much. It just, there's a pull that's greater in me with one kid that makes it harder as you shared to move them in those directions. And I would even argue unique to gender. One of the other things Sissy and I talk about is how easy we have found it to be in certain situations, not always, this is not across the board, but for dads to be harder on boys and moms to be harder on girls. And then the flip relationship happening, dads can do a little too much coddling with daughters sometimes and mother, mothers can with sons. And so I think if we're not paying attention to all those dynamics I just named and where we could be triggered or pulled in different ways, we could, without intention, accidentally be standing in the way of helping kids develop more of those three R's along the way, simply because to your honesty, that's more about what's going on inside of me than what's going on inside of them. Well, and that's where I found your book really helpful because it wasn't like you said, don't do that. <laughs> like, Don't be the anchor. You said, here's what you can do instead. And here are yes. the actual practical things you can do to help them gain perspective or empathy or resourcefulness to move from being the anchor to a coach who then is an observer of this process happening. So to give the mom hope who is out there and they feel like their child is emotionally, I just think immature a little bit and like not, you know, when I think of language development, you don't know vocabulary, you don't know how to express things perfectly. So there's tantrums. Similarly, there's that process with emotional growth and language and communication and so they're just more immature in that. And, and to go through that hard process, like you said, it's not going to be easy to do, but that it's going to be worth it. We're seeing fruit from it now from when I first read your book a few months ago. Mm. So thank you. Like it actually works. I'm here to testify. <laughs> like we, we were in shock. We we're having a family basketball game that always ends in one person, this particular child being upset, walking away storming off. And we successfully had three games with no, um, like throwing a tantrum, maybe getting upset, but staying regulated and not having to repair because he recognized it in himself and stayed calm and stayed in the mm. game. And we're like, this is resiliency. We're seeing it. It's happening. It. it's happening. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank and you for saying that. Yeah. Yeah. It can grow and you can use these tools and you can help them be equipped 
So what are some things with moms, particularly um, we have that emotional tug of war, like that anchoring, I think kind of co- goes along with that. And so what's your tip for the mom who's feeling continually pulled in and dragged along? I'm miserable. Yes. You're miserable too. Well, I would say, you know, we talk about that second R I introduce, and I've, I've talked a little bit about this in are my kids on track? And I really wanted to build on it even more because I had so many parents who attach strongly to this concept and are my kids on track. And I really, I realized I want to develop more of what that looks like. And I want to involve boys in the process of creating some space, an actual physical space where boys can go to do the work of regulation that instinctively keeps them from getting back into the pattern of anchoring and allows parents to interrupt the pattern of anchoring more successfully. So it's like, we've got this great healthy alternative as opposed to me just saying, quit following me around, but yet I haven't introduced any other alternatives of what to do in those (laughs) moments. And so I have a roadmap for how to do that in the parenting book. And then in the workbook for elementary boys, I walk boys through that process of setting it up with their parents and they brainstorm a list of things they think would be helpful to put in that space. And I talk in both books about how you've heard me say this before, and I don't think it could be said enough that boys have a lot of physicality to their emotion. It's why research would tell us that toddler age boys are more prone to biting hitting, kicking, screaming in a classroom setting. Adolescent boys are more prone to punching holes in drywall at home. It's not that girls don't do that, but not as often. And it's that need for a release. And I love talking with boys of all ages about that. Like that's part of how God hardwired you. Like that's instinctive in us. Our only job is to work within that, like figure out as many physical releases as possible. So I have a a blueprint for setting up some space. And then I invite every family to walk through creating what I call a top five list of just five healthy coping strategies. And I have three rules of thumb when it comes to a top five list. My first rule is no screens. I'm fine with screens for entertainment purposes, but not for this. Screens are an escape and we're working on strategies. So rule number one is no screens. Rule number two is I want at least half the list to be movement-based, which is honoring that need to release the physicality, the intensity. And then my third rule is I want breathing somewhere on the list. And I want it on the list because it is, research would tell us time and time again, the easiest, most effective, efficient way to start that regulation process in my body and brain. And so I just want boys to have one freebie on there that they know they can start to accomplish. The science would tell us at least 20 seconds of some deep breathing we'll begin to reset the amygdala. If I double that to 40, I've got twice the benefit. If I triple it to 60, if I do one minute, I'm knocking it out of the park at that point. And I will even do an experiment with kids. I wear the Apple watch and my heart rate is visible at all times. And I'll have kids look at it and I'll say, okay, take a look at my heart rate right now. What do you think is going to happen after you and I breathe for one minute? And every kid knows like it's going to go down. It's not going to go up. And so I love for them to get to see the hard evidence that I can within one minute of breathing lower my heart rate, at least a point or two. And so they get the opportunity to see that God hardwired us in those ways where through something as simple as breathing, something as simple as movement, I can create this settling effect inside of me. And so that's part of the wisdom of the top five list. And with teenagers, I'll have them, if they've got a phone, put the top five list in their device. Like I want them to have it on the ready at all times. With younger kids, I'll have them 
put it on a piece of paper, a note card, and hang it up somewhere in the house where it's visible, easily accessible. And then maybe back to creating an actual space, hanging it in that space so that if I am emotionally charged and can't think rationally, which none of us can do when we're emotionally charged, I don't even have to remember those five things. It's hanging up. I've just got to go to that space, not anchor to my mom and start test driving those five coping strategies. And so I walk families through a process in the book of just creating this in a way that kids are in the practice of not just using that list, but revisiting that list periodically. And I talk about how having a resilient mindset means that if I realize something stops working that once worked, I need to try something different. So for example, once upon a time in my 20s and 30s, I was a runner. And I managed to put too many miles on both my knees. So I'm no longer a runner. I'm a walker. And so that would have been on my top five list in those two decades. Walking is on it now. And so let's replace things that expire or stop working with something new at some point along the way. But really working within that list and practicing at that list. Again, back to bike riding. Like You don't just go to bed and wake up a bike rider. You got to get on it every day. You got to fall off of it and get back on it. And it's in the training and the practice where we start to develop that muscle memory. Can you give us some phrases or talk us through a scenario? Child comes home, they're upset, or two brothers fight and they're upset. Are we waiting to talk about what that emotion is until they're calm? Are we saying, hey, looks like you're maybe having a hard time? Would be a good opportunity to go to your space? Like, how are we re how are we working with them? these ideas? Yeah, yes. yeah. How are we actually implementing to eventually they're upset and they go to the space or they use these things, but recommending them without like it being a another place of conflict? Yes. I would say to every parent listening, I would love for you to adopt these three words and use them as often as possible. Work it through work it through. I think it's a phrase I'd love for us to throw to boys often. And so when we encounter our kids in these emotionally charged moments, hey, let's work it through. When kids are amped up in uh, you know, on the ride home from school, hey, as soon as we pull in the driveway, let's work it through. I can tell you're feeling a lot. Let's work it through. I don't think we can give that phrase to boys often enough. And there again, I think the messaging boys often give, get is you need to calm down. You need to stop yelling. You need to, we're telling them what not to do, but we're not telling them what to do. We're not replacing mm -hmm. that anchoring with something constructive. And so the work it through is, you know, connects right back to both the space and the top five lists that in a non problematic time, I sat down with my mom and my dad and we brainstormed a place I could go and five things that I could do when I need to work it through. So that if I am, accidentally anchoring to my brother in this moment and trying to work out my frustration from the day, I have a place and a list to go to, to work it through. Otherwise, I think it's exactly what kids will continue to do. They'll anchor to parents, they'll anchor to siblings. In fact, I had a, a mom tell me even last week, she said, David, it's like my son is running through every member of the family. And <laughs> when one of them is not accessible. I even saw him getting really corrective with our dog. And she was like, our dog is his favorite member of the family. Everyone knows that. But I could tell he'd been carrying a lot of worry and frustration from the day. And the dog was barking because the UPS guy was coming up to the thing. And he was like, stop barking. I said, stop barking now, just screaming at the dog. And she was like, it was, he loves this dog. And it was so obvious 
that he was turning that on even the family pet in this moment because there wasn't a person available or we had all abandoned ship on being his punching bag, his verbal punching bag. And so I think it's exactly what kids will continue to do is find someone unless they learn something different to do, which is why I really want to labor in these spaces. Um, Before we have to go, I want to spend some time talking through some emotions boys have or show that we may be misinterpreting or reacting to. Uh, you, You talk through your four legs of the stool that you work through with kids. And I think that's a helpful tool to find out what they're actually thinking, feeling, wait, it's think, feel, do true, but yes, think, feel, do true. But I think anxious boys are often misread. Depressed boys are often Mm -hmm. misread when boys are frustrated. You've talked about how they swing between blame and shame. And I think all of this is really helpful for moms to know about. So would you kind of go through that a little bit? I'd love to. Okay. And I love that you highlighted that because you know, even the, the blame to shame swing, I have specific exercises, both in the parenting book and the workbook for boys that they can do to help boys make connections around these concepts. So it's not just ideas, but it's something that I think is useful. It's an experiential because boys are primarily experiential learners. You know, you've heard me talk so much about how we spend way too much of a boy's life talking at him and talking to him and very little of that landing on him. And so the book and workbook are full of experiential things so that he can make some really strong connections around these ideas. And, you know, let me start with a tool Then I want to move toward anxiety and depression. The stool, excuse me, the stool, I've got a four-legged stool in my office that I sometimes will drag out in the middle of the room and I label each leg with boys and, you know, sometimes start with something, you know, kind of funny, like, Hey, what, would your thoughts be if I were to take three legs, unscrew three of the legs off this stool and ask you to sit on a one-legged stool? Like, how open would you be to this point? You know, and they're like, not very. And so, okay, how about two though? What if I just give you one leg back? No, you know, there's not going to be much stability. Three. Okay. I can get a little bit of balance with three, but we all know it's going to work best with four. And I talk about the four legs representing things we think things we feel, things we do, and also truth. And that's where the think, feel, do, true come from. And that if we were to go even a little bit deeper, which I wish we had a whole nother hour to talk because you and I could really drill down on this as it relates even to the Enneagram, which, you know, is another tool we use a lot that, you know, if you know your number, you start to learn over time that we're dominant in one of the three thinking, feeling, and doing, and we're repressed in one. And that doesn't mean that we never use the one we're repressing. It just means we use it the least and we really lean heavy on the other two. So we're basically kind of sitting on a two-legged stool most of life. And it becomes our job to fold in that third leg and then add truth into the mix as well. Because sometimes what I think is not in the vicinity of what God said is true about me. I have thoughts about myself at times that are couldn't be farther away from what my heavenly father says about me as a man, as a son. And so making sure that I'm not giving too much weight to my thoughts or my feelings and even the doing, I'm a doing dominant person in my Enneagram number. So I can go straight to the doing and even ignore feelings and thoughts at times. And so again, we're all going to bend a little, we're all going to lean a little farther on one of those legs, but we got to figure out over the long haul 
how do I incorporate all four? How, what does it look like? So I've got some practices in place that help families kind of work with that concept and idea. But your comment a little bit earlier about how easy it is to miss things with boys, I, I don't think we could be talking enough about that. And, you know, with both anxiety and depression, which have long been on the rise in our country and the pandemic only made things worse. You know, the number, the scary numbers we had pre-pandemic only got worse over the course of the pandemic. You know, uh, the presentation, our understanding of both of those is predominantly based on how it looks on adult females. So if we even think about the word depression, we think about someone who's sad, lethargic, may have difficulty getting out of bed, is unmotivated. Those Things can be true about boys and adolescent males, but in my experience, are not as often true. In fact, I would say most depressed boys I work with are irritable and angry. I had a mom once say to me, it's like he wakes up with a low-grade chronic irritability every day. And that is more oftentimes what I think depression can look like with males. And with anxiety, we think about fear and worry, and those certainly are in the mix with boys. But again, back to what we talked about, the primary presentation a lot of times is going to be anger, rigidity. You know, I have parents who I'll start to talk about anxiety. He's not anxious. He's just angry. And I'll, you know, say, let's lean in farther to that because there's every possibility that's what's underneath, that there's some worry and fear underneath that anger. And so what's interesting, you know, our dear friend Sissy Goff talks about the current stats would tell us that girls are twice as likely to struggle with anxiety. But what's interesting is that the research tells us, even with that reality, more boys get taken in for help. Mm. That fascinating. Twice as many girls struggle, but more boys get taken in for help. And I have a theory about the why of that. There are several theories, but one of those is Sissy does a beautiful job in her book, Raising Word for Girls, talking about the classic presentations with all kids, not just with girls of imploders and exploders. And imploders tend to be, in our experience, more oftentimes girls. So when they experience anxiety, they become more pleasing and perfectionistic. They turn the anxiety in on themselves. Boys can do that. I definitely see a lot of firstborn males who move in that direction, but more oftentimes boys fit the presentation of classic exploders. And so it comes out as volatility, which is why I think they get taken in for help because it becomes more problematic in the classroom, in the home, in these different contexts. So, but again, often what we're doing is, treating the behaviors or addressing the anger, but we're missing what's underneath, which is the anxiety. So thank you for letting me talk about that because I don't think we could be leaning in far enough. I can't tell you the number of boys, even that I've seen who've been misdiagnosed with ADHD. Sometimes it's anxiety that is the primary presentation, but anxious boys in a classroom look under-focused, restless, fidgety. A lot of the things that make us think and our benchmarks of, a, of ADHD as well, but is where we could, again, miss it because it's being masked. The anxiety is masking something. And that's where going through the stool activity, you're actually hearing what they're thinking and feeling if they're Absolutely. willing to engage in it. And they may communicate, well, I'm really afraid of something or whatever yes. it is. And yes. if we're only reacting to their anger or their explosions or their stubbornness, rigidity, it's like, oh my goodness, they're so stubborn. Well, right. maybe they're trying to control their environment because they're terrified yes. of new experiences and how they're going to respond. And so I think it's been helpful for me to learn that from you, how these 
manifest in behavior and to not just react to that, but to get curious and ask more questions and to help them process and label all of it. Because when it comes to kids and adolescents, all behavior is communication. Mm-hmm. All behavior is telling us something. We just yeah. got to lean in and do some investigating. And sometimes with boys, because we discussed on the front side of the conversation that it's harder for them to articulate their experience. It requires even more investigation at times. You have a little section on moms in your book that says there are three things moms can do to help support and raise emotionally strong boys. Do you remember the three things or do you want me to tell you? (laughs) Cause I've written books and I don't remember what I wrote in there. I do remember okay, okay. I talk about being safe. Yeah. I talk about letting go mm-hmm. and staying steady. And there's a beautiful definition that I think embodies those things. Decades ago, I read a book called The Art of Family by a woman named Gina Bria. And this was her definition of mothering boys that I loved. I will never forget it. She said, I think the work of mothering a son is mostly about stepping aside with precise timing. She went on to say, I want my sons to know that they are free to be rooted in home, but still be abroad in the world as men. And I remember just having to stop and breathe after reading that. I thought that is as true a definition of the journey a mother takes with the boys. One I've read, you know, and I think includes all those things we just talked about of being safe and staying steady. And also what I think is one of the hardest parts of the journey for a mom and stewarding the gift of a son is, is letting go, you know, and what does it look like to do that and maintain relationship? Yeah. Because I think so many moms interpret letting go as mean, I'm just going to stop. He doesn't need me anymore. We're going to mm-hmm. no longer be in relationship. And it couldn't mean less of that. Yeah. Like, you know, I lost my mom a few years ago to cancer. She was the most important, one of the most important people in my world. And there is there's not a day that goes by that I don't bump up against the significance of that loss. And I mean, I had literally just a week and a half ago, I was driving down the road. Someone had sent me a album and um, I was listening to a song and it reminded me of her. And within seconds, I was weeping driving down the road, you know, and I'm years away from that loss, but my mom was in her sixties when I lost her. I'm in my fifties now, you know, and the weight of that still, I carry it every day because of the significance of that relationship. So it's ongoing. I want every mom to hear me say that as we talk around those ideas of letting go, it's ongoing. Well, now we're all crying. Thank you, David. Mm. (laughs) I'm so sorry for your loss as I'm weeping with you laughing and crying, but I think I've watched this process happen already. And there's this attaching to mom that's necessary for emotional health and moms who've adopted or fostered can see the trauma that happens in the, you know, disruption of family units. So that attachment is so great, but that individuating away from you is so painful, but necessary. And being able to go to New York with my oldest uh, a couple months ago and be individuated, but, you know, friends was such a gift. And so I would highly recommend, yes, do the letting go, encourage them, speak life over them that you believe they are capable and strong and resilient and all of those things. 
but it doesn't mean that you're not in their lives and it doesn't mean that they don't need your voice or your thoughts um, or your relationship and your love, which is different. And it's, it's fantastic and different. It's, you know, but that painful breaking away process, I do not love, didn't love that. But if you're experiencing conflict with your son, that could be. There it is. All behaviors communicate. Yes, it, <laughs> it could, could be, be them saying, "Mom, I you know I got it." In the yeah. separating uh-huh. out, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And we're trying to smother mother, and they're like, "Okay, I got it, mom. I'm I, I'm capable. I'm responsible. Yeah. You don't have to keep reminding me." And I think with dads, it, that happens just a little bit older. I'm seeing it with like my husband and my oldest mm-hmm. that he's wanting to make sure he knows all the things before he leaves the house, and I'm like, "Okay, you, he knows that. He's he's got it." But I think it's yeah. harder. I don't know. Oh, yes. I haven't done any research on this, David. I'm just observing. You know, that tendency we talked about a little bit earlier where dads can be harder on boys and, and moms can be harder on girls. Um, I think what I experience is happening and you're speaking to it with dads is I know what it takes to be a man in this world. And therefore, I feel this urgency, like I've got to prepare him. Yep. mom's listing of girl, you know what it takes to be a woman in this world and creates this urgency. Like I've got to make sure she's prepared. And so often I just did an interview on this not long ago, talking about parenting boys in the 18 to 22 space. You know, we start acting like we've hit the finish line at 18th and we're done at that point. You know, we've lost every opportunity and we have not, you know, I have yeah. three kids who are in that developmental space right now. They still need me. Our relationship certainly looks different. We don't even live in the same state. You know, I have a daughter who's studying abroad in Spain right now, and we're not even in the same country. And yet there are still needs that exist where she needs me to be her dad. And I want to be her dad. But what does that look like in that next season? And I think it can look so different when we've been leaning in well to the being safe and letting go and staying steady. So thanks for letting me talk about that. I did want to write a lot around that in this new book. Um, because again, as you just heard me say, I mean, out of my own journey, there is something so profound about the, the relationship between a mother and a son that I think shapes boys tremendously. So it, it was of great importance for me to talk about that when I talk about a, a young man's emotional development. So thank you. Well, thank you for writing all this out in the midst of a busy work life where you stay tethered to actual parents walking through hard things right now as they're happening with whatever's going on in our world at the time. So we appreciate your freshness and relevance and understanding where we are and giving us such great tools. And friend, thank you for the great work you're doing in this world. You know, I've told you before in private, I'm going to say it publicly right now. You can't know how often I intersect with moms who would say, I found out about your work. Through Heather, through Don't Mom Alone. And so I think you are speaking into the lives of mothers uh, in this world. And I trust your voice so much. So grateful for the life-giving work that you're doing and just honored you let me come on and be a part of this conversation today. Thank you. Well, big hearts, big hearts. Thanks, David. We will talk to you soon. I look forward to it. Okay. Thanks y'all for sticking with this. I will tell you, if you have boys or you know someone with boys, this is the resource they need. I've read through it two times and I've applied so many things from it. Just the other day, uh, one of mine was just had a lot of uh, anger and it was directed towards us. And I 
remembered all that David's taught me and I thought the thing's not the thing. And so once we kind of were home and away from brothers and other people, I just said, you know what, do you want to punch this pillow? And as he did, those tears started coming and it's a reminder to me of being that person who guides them, who allows them to express those in a safe way. And I'll tell you afterwards, the child came to me and said, thank you. Thank you for that. And it was a more connected opportunity rather than me reacting to the anger, me shutting down the emotions, me saying, do different, be calm, stop feeling. And so I am incredibly grateful for David's leadership on this. I'm going to pray over us because I know this is a lot for us to process um, and just bring to God. Lord, I thank you so much on how you made us in your image. I thank you that you have allowed us to be moms in this generation with these kids. And I pray, Lord, that we would daily seek your wisdom and guidance through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us know how to equip the next generation for all they will face. And I pray, Lord, um, over moms who are working through some really hard things with their boys, depression, anxiety, anger, I pray that you would give them a supernatural dose of encouragement right now, that they would feel your presence and your hope that it it's never, ever too late. And um, if they need to seek professional help, Lord, that you would guide them to the next right person. I pray over these boys who will become men. I pray for them to know you and your identity over them and your love for them, Lord. I pray for David and the launching of this book that you would just give him rest and encouragement in Jesus name. Amen. All right, y'all. I will see you back here next week. We've got a lot of fun episodes coming up. Um, man, I just to give you a little heads up, we will be doing summer of mentorship coming up in June, July six weeks of it, but this time we're doing it a little bit different. We're going to have some new interviews with old guests. They'll be about 30 minutes and we will provide discussion questions just like we always do. So if you are wanting to gather some women just for the summer, that could be a good option. You could try out our podcast clubs, uh, go to the website to learn more about podcast clubs. If you want, basically you listen to the podcast, you get together and you talk about it. Super simple, make it organic, meet at the pool, meet at a park, meet at your house, whatever you want. Uh, It's all meet with one person. It's fine. Just we want to help support you get together with other moms and remember that you don't mom alone. All right. I'll see you back here next week. Adios. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Don't Mom Alone podcast. If you're wanting to connect with more people and more resources to help remind you that you're not alone, head over to don'tmomalone.com. That's where you'll also find show notes with any links mentioned by our guests. Most importantly, I want you to know the good news, the great news that you're not alone because God has promised to always be with you. With faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for you and rose again, Jesus said when he left, he was going to leave a helper, a comforter to be with us. God in us, moms, that's superpower. So while you're washing dishes at your kitchen sink, while you're driving to and from work, while you're feeding that baby late into the night, while you're cleaning sticky floors, God promises to be just as present with you 
as when you're worshiping in a church pew. As it says in Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Now that's good news. Have a great day.